Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Sterling and the Book of Miracles. And joining me from California is the author, Pam DeBone. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This is uh, a, a first novel for you, or first book. Have you always been a, a, an author? I mean, have you always had that desire to, to write books? No, I haven't. It came as a surprise to me. <laughs> Sur- surprise to you. <laughs> now, that's an interesting uh, way to, to observe it or think about <laughs> it. Uh, when you say it's a surprise to you, have you been a person that's uh, kept notes, uh, kept journals, that type of thing? Or is this just uh, an idea that popped to the surface and you had a desire and a passion to write? What happened was I am a very devout Christian, and I pray every day. And for the last two years, it was like God was telling me he wanted me to write a book, and I kept thinking it was just me. No, no, no I'm not going to do that. I, I'm talking to myself. Mm. Well, it ended up that he really was inspiring me, and these subjects came into my mind. So I thought, okay, Lord, if you really want me to do this, get me a nice cheap desk and a cheap chair, and I'll write for you. And, <laughs> and he did that. And when he did that, I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe he, this really is what he wants. And then he, I sat down at my desk, put a pad and paper, and just started writing. And I got this book finished in eight days. Wow. He gave me, he inspired me totally through the whole book. It was great. And you have a passion for youth, if I understand your motivation as well. I absolutely do. There is so much going on with our kids these days. I feel so bad for them because there's so much peer pressure, there's physical and mental and cyberbullying, there's low self-esteem, and it's even getting so bad these kids are committing suicide. Mm. And my books are to offer them inspiration and hope when they read it. It's fictional, but it's a fun fiction book. The uh, creativity that went into this, you say it, it really came together in a short period of time. Uh, who did you have in mind when you were writing this? I, I know you've mentioned youth, but is this uh, a book that will inspire a, a, a wide range of audience, do you think? Absolutely. In fact, my sister's uh, granddaughter, who is eight years old, loved it. And then it goes up into middle school, and the young the young girl in the book is in middle school. But it also encompasses high school and college, where kids are having these difficulties, but I have had several reviews from adults who are loving the book, so all ranges oh, that's would encur- be happy to read the book. Oh, that's encouraging, especially as a fresh and new author entering the marketplace. Uh, 116 pages, not a long read. How would you describe the book? Uh, is it, um, uh, you did mention fictional, is it set in present day times, or is it uh, past tense or future? It's actually present day. Um, it's located in a forest that I just made up. It, I just kind of made it up and ran with it. It's called the Baruch Forest, which in Hebrew means blessed. And that's where a lot of this happens, where the meat of the story happens in the Baruch Forest, where uh, the main character meets her guardian angel. So it's really a very um, present day. I mean, we all have our guardian angels, so mm-hmm. it's present day and in a made-up forest. The name Sterling, is that the main character's name? 
That is the main character, yes. And that's She's a 14-year-old middle school girl. Yes, I was going to ask whether it was a girl or boy, and it is an unusual name for a girl. Is it just uh, one of those inspiring thoughts that took a walk through your mind, I guess, would be the way to describe that? That's perfect description, because I was sitting there, and I said, okay, Lord, you, you're giving me this book. You better give me a good, catchy name, and, hmm. and it just came into my mind, and I went, oh, I'm running with it. <laughs> Beautiful. So that's it. I, th- I think it's a very catchy phrase and name, for sure. The uh, book itself, uh, what is the underlying message, or what do you want the reader to take away from reading this 116-page novel? Well, after... Um, Putting it all together, to me, it's inspiration. What I want is the kids to take out of it is that they have a purpose. She ended up being a book, she was a bookworm and ended up being, her personality totally changed. So she knew then that she had a purpose. And the whole premise is for to inspire our kids, to let them know they have a purpose, that they have gifts and talents that may be hidden, that they don't realize that they have, and that they are here for a reason. They're not an accident. No child, no person, no adult is an accident. They're here on this earth to give their gifts and their talents to the world and their family and everyone around them. So they are very important to God's um, final premise of this whole just being alive. It's wonderful. He's given us all great gifts, and we need to utilize them. And now, do you have to have a religious foundation in order to read your book, or is this something that would appeal to just anybody who loves an adventure story? Absolutely. I don't push any religion in it. I use a few scriptures, but it's all just a fictional fun story and an adventure through the dark tunnels with um, uh, the main character, her guardian angel, and they have to battle dark angels. So it's really a fun fictional adventure story with a great message at the end. Uh, did you include an action scene or some scene in here that when the reader sees that, uh, that's going to really stick out in their mind? Or, or it's one that when you wrote it and completed the book, you looked back on that and said, wow, that was a fun incident to include. Yes. When they're in the dark tunnels, um, they're uh, meeting the battles are coming one at a time. They get through one battle, and they have to continue down the tunnel to find the stolen book of miracles, which was stolen by a dark angel. They have to battle several, and when she comes to one of the battles where she is just absolutely stuck because the angels are doing most of the battles, but she wants to be involved, well, she's been given a special weapon by her guardian angel, and she bends down and she says, this weapon is going to get me through this battle, and it just brought Goosebumps all over me when I finally finished writing that whole scene because she's just she she says went from a bookworm to a warrior down in the tunnels to find this stolen book. That should be an encouragement to young readers, especially with their imagination and with the challenges that you've described earlier in our conversation. Your your main character, the guardian angel. Uh, what name did you give her or him? Ah, uh, her name is Luna. Luna, yeah. She's, um, God created her from the heavens, in the heavens, and she, he gave her very special um, abilities that um, where she, she lights up and all kinds of neat little things that she has. She has great weapons, and they all um, evolve around the moon and the light, because Luna means moon, but it also is one of God's creations. So he created her to be a light in the darkness, and she's got 
fabulous weapons. Well, in the title of your book, uh, Sterling and the Book of Miracles, the Book of Miracles obviously is the important aspect of your book. Is that uh, something you can share with the uh, the audience, or is it just uh, is it a is it an actual book, or is it a, a fictional um, uh, imagined book? How would you describe that? It is actually a fictional imagined book. It contains the requests and prayers of all of mankind. Hmm. And God holds it in a special library, not library, we call it the book room in the book. And that's where he keeps that and the book of life is all kept. And many books written about everyone on earth has a book written about them in this, in this book room. Well, the book of miracles gets stolen by a dark angel. They don't know how he infiltrates it. And he, he's able to get in there and he steals it. And if Sterling and the angels do not recover the book, all of mankind's prayers and requests to God are going to be lost if they can't recover the book. So it's just a fictional book. And in introducing this, you would, I, I'm assuming, uh, say that the 14-year-old heroine of this book is uh, sort of in a coming-of-age situation uh, with this challenge that's uh, presented before her. Absolutely. Yep. When the guardian of uh, angel appears to her, and they ask her for um, help in recovering the book. She's taken aback, thinking, "Why would God want me? Why would anyone want me to help? I'm just a little bookworm." But they, she's picked specifically to chase after this book with the angels and try and recover it because she loves books, and God knows that in her heart, if anybody's going to recover, it'll be her because she has a, such a great love and respect for books. Is there anything else in the marketplace that you have uh, come across or perhaps someone you know has read that has uh, a similar storyline to this book, or do you think this is unique? I think it's unique. <laughs> I've had several people tell me I've never heard of something like that. This is amazing because people don't really realize they have guardian angels and that they, and that I wanted to make sure that they know that they have someone following and watching them every day and that guardian angels kind of get pushed to the side sometimes. So I wanted to just make people aware that, yes, you do. You have a guardian angel. Your book takes place near London. Is uh, all of the activity, all of the adventure is centered on that geographical location in your book? Well, most of it happens in the forest. Yes. Mm. Most of what, all the action and adventure happens there. It leads up to her um, making it to London from, she lives in America, she makes it to London, but once she enters the forest, that's when all the adventure begins, and it doesn't stop until she, um, the end of the book. Was there any unforeseen challenge in writing this that uh, you had to overcome? Oh, yeah, the big thing was Luna's weapons. I wanted to make Luna, her guardian angel, to be absolutely beautiful and stunning because you, you picture angels as being absolutely beautiful and ethereal. Well, that I, I was able to describe her, but when it came to her weapons, I had a very difficult time trying to put together some really amazing weapons for her to use. Well, for three days, I stopped, and that's why it took eight days because it probably would have taken five with mm. me writing it. But three days I was stuck on her weapons, so I finally took my son out to lunch and said, okay, you play Overwatch, you play Monster Hunter, 
you got to help me with some weapons. So he did. We sat down together and we made up six different weapons that she's got that she uses against the Dark Angels, and it's amazing. The battles are amazing. You obviously have enjoyed the process. Uh, other books in the series, are those on the horizon? Have they been released yet? Absolutely. She was the first book. Um, my second book is out. It was uh, released January this year. Um, each one is going to involve a guardian angel. So this one is Kyle and the Key is my second book, and the series is being called The Guardian Angel Chronicles. So each one's going to contain an angel. Oh, this is about a young boy and a bully. So How to Overcome Being Bullied is the second book. So it's, it's already out there. Wow. And it's, I'm in the middle of my third book. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds as though the creativity uh, is, uh, is flowing, and uh, we'll get to talk again, I'm guessing, uh, when this other series, uh, other books in the series are released. You, you obviously have a passion for this, and the story content and the um, inspiration behind it seems to be very, very strong. Where do my listeners get a copy of this, Pam? Oh, sure. They can go to my publisher's website, which is exlibris.com, or they can go to amazon.com, and it's also at barnesandnoble.com. And they can do a search under your name, Pam Debon, which is spelled D-A-B-O-N, kind of that French That's thingy correct. going on there. Correct. Or they can they can uh, search for Sterling in the Book of Miracles, of course, yeah, the name of the book. Fabulous. Great, great idea. Pam, it's a pleasure visiting with you, and uh, congratulations on completing this and the first in a series of, it sounds like wonderful adventures. Not difficult to read, 112 pages, so it's a very short read uh, in general terms. And uh, who knows, maybe this will turn into an um, animated adventure or live-action series. Congratulations. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. My pleasure for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Parker. Libris returns after these short messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcasts. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at scott at toginetradio.com. That's S-C-O-T-T at T-O-G-I-N-E-T-R-A-D-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is intriguing. It's titled, The Woo Woo Sisters, We Book of Wisdom. And joining me from near Denver, Colorado, is the author, who is also a, has earned doctorate uh, next to her name, but she has uh, written this under her personal name, Cynthia Ann Drew Barnes. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, Cynthia, this is uh, an undertaking that 
I I know it's from personal experience. You have uh, moved several times in your life. You had an experience. You grew up in, in Chicago, left Chicago, and then returned to take care of uh, ailing parents, if I understand the, the story correctly. Uh, how did that impact this book, and where did this book idea come from? Ah, uh, very good question. I, I, I think, actually, the... The relocation kind of triggered the writing of this book. I, mm. I've told someone recently as as a young child, and I, I may not should say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. When, when I was a when I was a young girl, for some reason I don't remember what it was. I did not like living in Chicago, mm. and I was I can recall praying one day. And I said to God, God, I know that you're not going to make me live here my entire life. I don't know where you're going to let me live, but I know it's not going to be here. Mm. And so uh, as it turned out, uh, I ended up married to someone who was in the Army. So we moved around a little bit and um, ended up in Denver and uh, not in Chicago, but my parents, both of them, my father was recovering from prostate cancer, which I did not know until I got there. Hmm. And uh, my mother had dementia, oh. uh, which ultimately morphed into Alzheimer's. And as the oldest uh, at that time, I thought it was, well, you know, they're my parents. And so uh, my brother and sister were living there at the time, and I kept, I felt like intuitively I just sensed something was awry. And I kept asking them how our parents were doing, and they kept telling me fine. And I just didn't feel like that was the case, and so I decided to go there and see for myself. And uh, when I got there, um, my mother, who had spent most of her life working in retail, and her house kind of reflected that. She had, like, china and all kinds of linens and all that and and that's relevant to this story because she was sleeping uh under a tablecloth wow and um so that tipped me off that something was not right and um so i i ended up deciding that i needed to stay there for a while and figure out what was going on with them and got my mother uh to the doctor my father was needing some follow-up surgery and and I made myself go to his, I made him take me to his doctor's appointment, which is where I found out that he had driven himself to 35 or 36 radiation treatments Ouch. as a result of having, pro, yeah, prostate care. Well, that, and I, I always like to tell people, those are the kind of people I come from. I, I hope I have some of those genes <laughs> because, yeah, because they were like tough people. My father especially was really tough. And um, so at any rate... I decided I needed to stay there for a while and see what was going on them, with them, get my mother on the right medication and all the rest of that. And while I was there, um, my son was here. He was in college at the time. And I just it felt like it was one of the, uh, I don't even know what, what adjective I want to use. It was, it was, I felt like my whole life was kind of coming apart. Hmm. And um, I needed to do something. And so I decided to write. And the subtitle of your book is just some little life essentials I wish I'd known when. And the when part is uh, just to underscore for the the listener, this is not a negative book. It is uh, actually filled with some positive ideas and uh, really some, I I would say, even some some humorous incidences would be uh, recounted. Would that be correct? 
yes, that would be very correct. Good. And it it was yeah. I, I, what I what I discovered upon reflection at that particular point in my life is because I had always tried to be the perfect little girl. In fact, I think I used to refer to myself as a recovering perfectionistic workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and, and I've given that up. Well, you, you know, that you certainly have been motivated. You have uh, several degrees. I don't know what that, uh, <laughs> what that entails or why that would be. I've got a friend who is a yeah. professional student. I don't think you are that type of personality were you or uh, how would you describe your quest for knowledge well i came from on my mother's side of the family uh a family of teachers mm. and so i it was always around them and and they used to have uh growing up in chicago they used to have what was called records day and that was the day when the students weren't there but the teachers would go in and calculate grades and all the rest of that and so one of my aunts would typically drag me along with them to help, you know, grade papers or do something with the grade book or whatever else. Mm. Well, as a result of that, I decided the last thing on earth I was ever going to be was a teacher. But the universe had other plans. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, and my father uh, was, uh, he was one of the smartest people I've ever known in this lifetime, avid reader, in fact, he had taught himself to read. Um, Is that right? And and so he 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 and my mother, but he mostly was just adamant about getting as much education as you could. He would always say, he said, people can always steal what you have. They can steal your material goods. They can steal your property, but they can never steal what's in your head and what's in your heart. Wow, uh, that's good advice and, uh, from from any generation for sure. Yeah. And so I decided my best bet was to to try to do that. And then I had, Jay, a really funny experience. Um, after high school, I went to University of Illinois at Chicago. And after my first year, I decided I wanted a job. And so I got a job as a student assistant working in the physical plant. And that summer, one of my assignments was to help the people who actually worked there with um, doing inventory at the laundry at the medical center of mm. the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was quite an experience. <laughs> Not only was it 300 degrees in the laundry, <laughs> but, you know, standing there counting sheets and towels and pillowcases and the, at any rate, I had had kind of an interesting first year in college, but that experience that first summer after my first year of college convinced me that I was going to finish college. Mm. (laughs) I'd had a new dedication to higher education. I I think that would do it for me as well if I had experienced uh, that type of stress in my uh, freshman year of college. You have uh, still continued as a writer being a teacher of sorts, 108 pages, you've penned 10 
10 lessons or 10, uh, 10 chapters, if I could call them that. You, you, you refer to them as lesson one, two, three, four, and so on, all the way to lesson 10. A couple of them stand out yes. to me. I, the first one, of course, is just, just wonderful good advice. Live your life in alignment with the uh, Creator's purpose. So you have uh, felt there's been some spiritual guidance elsewhere and some meaning in life that you wanted to pursue for sure. And then you say, take charge of your own happiness. And one, Chapter uh, Lesson 4, I didn't quite get it. I haven't read it yet, so I want to ask you about it. It says that the uh, Lesson 4 is understand the missing leg theory and other things about men. Uh, I may be opening up a can of uh, can of petunias here, but uh, tell me about that. Okay, well, I, um, as I said, I was in Chicago and I was reflecting on a lot of things. I don't know where this thought came to me, but it came to me. You know, that women have, um, okay, now I see I'm going to get it wrong. Uh-oh. Uh, an X and a, an X, two X chromosomes. Yes. Women have two, yes, women have two X chromosomes. Men have an X and a Y chromosome. Mm. And so what I posited was that one of those X's bro- broke off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in men, yeah, I mean, probably, and, true, I and God put God put some place that women don't have. Uh-huh. Okay, which, which created some additional challenges for them along the lines of thinking with their brains. I unfortunately have if family I'm members I can relate sense. to. Yes, I know that absolutely makes sense to me. I have a family member that I hope never hears this uh, comment, but yeah, they have that same problem <laughs> and they are of the male species. Now, you have, as again, as I've mentioned earlier, you, you have a, a uh, not only a uh, unique approach, but also one that's sort of uh, humorous in some respects, in spite of the uh, challenging background that you described earlier. You have um, uh, some good advice in here. Chapter 9 was one that I looked at, and uh, certainly it talks about things that are just common sense, at least in my upbringing. It talks about the practicing of the seven common graces. Now, as you began yeah. to write this book, was there, was it, did you work from an outline or did you work uh, just creatively? How did you go about putting these thoughts together? I think I had a kind of general outline. It was and, and some of the lessons, I think, were things that at that particular time um, were, were kind of pet peeves of mine. <laughs> and one of them was that it seemed to me that, and, and sometimes I joke even now, in fact, I think I, I said to my son last night, I have, I have this saying where I say that some people grew up in houses where they learned home training one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And home training 101 basically teaches you how to be a good human being and to treat people and yourself with respect and blah, blah, blah. Well, at the, at the time that I was writing this book, it seemed like, and I think I even said to a couple of people, not, not to everybody I met, but I would say to people, were you reared in the woods by wolves? Mm-hmm. Because, because clearly if home training 101 was a subject that was offered in your home, you were absent on the days when the major <laughs> things were being taught. Observational. And, uh-huh. and one of the things that came up for me was the fact that people seem to have forgotten the common graces. Yes. You know, things like please and thank you and I'm sorry and <laughs> things that really make us human. 
Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I needed to to write that chapter as a remainder, a reminder to some. And for those who had missed Home Training 101, it would be a new lesson in how one treats one's fellows. Kind of sets that uh, common phrase, uh, do unto others as you would do unto them, or, or I have, you know, I've yeah. even forgotten. Yeah, in other words, treat people the way you want to be treated. That, that uh, exactly. title is unique also. Where did that come from? And explain it to my listeners a little. The Woo Woo Sisters, We Book of Wisdom. It's interesting because one day, and I can't remember now exactly where I was, I know that I was at work, and I was having a conversation with a gentleman, and I don't, I don't remember now whether it was a student or a colleague or exactly who it was, but I was having a conversation with this person about some of my spiritual beliefs, and I, I categorized myself as a New Age Buddhist Baptist, which <laughs> makes no sense to anybody but to me. Right. But that's how I that's that's how I speak about myself in in terms of religiosity. And so I was telling him some of the things about my spiritual beliefs, and he said to me, "Boy, you are really woo woo, aren't you?" Uh-huh. And I and it just stuck. I said, "Well, yeah, I guess I am kind of woo woo, you know. If that means that I have these this certain belief system uh, that that requires that I treat others." as I would like to be treated, and to treat them with... I always, I've said this, in fact, I can remember at work we had T-shirts made one time, and it, it, it we left off the last part, but it, it is that you treat people with dignity and respect hmm. until you realize they can't handle it. Uh, I need a copy and of that And then you shirt. have to shift. Mm-hmm. The book itself, how long did it take, and uh, what... Do you feel, uh, how would you describe the uh, ideal reader? Is this one, because it says, Woo Woo Sisters, We we, uh, we Book of Wisdom, is this a book that's going to be appealing only to one gender, or uh, can guys also enjoy this uh, this read? Well, you know, I, I actually thought about that, Jay, uh, when I wrote it. And I think I wrote it because I am a woman, and I was, at the time that I wrote it, I was speaking primarily to women. Mm. But I think that there are lots of things in the book that will resonate with men as well. Beautiful. Yeah. I think it, it's for anybody who's interested in becoming more of who they were sent to the planet to be. Uh, excellent advice. There, again, is some uh, very fine chapters in here, in this book, of 108 pages. They're not complicated to read, but they're just, I would say, perhaps a common sense approach to life, and certainly a reflection on your journey of uh, getting to where you are today. Uh, make happiness deposits in the bank of life well before you need to make a withdrawal. I like that uh, phrase, absolutely. And when you find you... Love may find you too. That's uh, those are some some very intriguing and interesting lesson titles that you've included. The title of the book again is the Woo Woo Sisters We Book of Wisdom. Just some little life essentials I wish I had known when. And the author Cynthia Anne, without the E, Drew Barnes. Cynthia, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can get them Amazon.com, uh, Barnes and Noble. Dot com. Those are the primary places, or you can get copies at exlibris.com. And 
ultimately, I'm, I don't have information on this right now, but they will be available at local bookstores. Fantastic. They can ask their local bookseller by the title of the book or by the author's yes. name. Last name is Barnes, and it's Cynthia Ann Drew Barnes. That's uh, not Andrew, but Ann Drew Barnes. And uh, as you uh, ask uh, for her writings, perhaps something else will pop up. Uh, are you working on something for the future? I I actually am, uh, mm-hmm. and and I I probably shouldn't admit this to you, Jay, because it's going to make me seem like a pro- procrastinator, which is really <laughs> antithetical to my perfectionistic previously perfectionistic tendencies. Yeah. But I started this book probably four years ago or so. Well, that's not. But then uh, <laughs> I haven't finished it yet. But the title of it is the is Miracle on Malta Street. Oh, fantastic. Well, I've talked to some authors that have been at it and had uh, 19, 20 years of, uh, of composition behind them before they ever published. So I think that's I think you're way ahead of the curve so far. Thank you, Cynthia, for joining me today and sharing your story. OK, my pleasure for Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book title is The Making of a Cowboy Doctor. And joining me is that doctor and the author of this book, Kyle Versteg. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, my pleasure. And you are in Iowa, which uh, for many of us in the southern states like Texas and uh, Oklahoma and those other areas, we have not had the pleasure of visiting Iowa. Share with me a little of your history. Uh, were you born in Iowa? Did you decide to become a doctor there? What motivated you to become a doctor and to write this book? Well, I, I was... Uh... Uh, raised in Iowa, actually born in Minneapolis, but I oh, I don't remember that. All I remember is Iowa, and uh, I uh, was uh, raised by a football coach, and he uh, encouraged me to uh, be be uh, someone that uh, was productive. He wanted me to be an athlete, but I wasn't uh, that athletic. Couldn't be a college player like he was. Yes, but it's instilled in me a value system that was pretty middle class. Hmm. Uh, and we had to be self-reliant. We had to develop our interests. And uh, he didn't want me to do silly things like uh, run an electric train or something like that. He wanted me out practicing or doing something where I'd be learning something. That kind of was instilled in me in an early age, probably before I even realized it. And it stuck with me. You're... That's kind of how it started. And then... Uh, 
Your reputation is one of an independent thinker also, uh, which sort of fits in the Iowa mystique, I would think. Uh, you didn't like to just do what everybody else did. And as a doctor, you had an independent attitude uh, towards medicine as well. Is that, uh, am I understanding your history? Exactly. I, uh, I was uh, an independent thinker, and I uh, had one uh, episode where I read a book called Atlas Shrugged, and uh, that really uh, hit me. Hmm. And I read it when I was about, oh, I think 21 or so. As an author, are you retired or are you still active in practice? I retired in uh, December of last year, so I've been retired about six months. Is that what motivated you to write this? I mean, were you just bored and needed something to do? Or how did the book, The Making of a Cowboy Doctor, get done? Well, I, you know, I had a 40-year career where I had to uh, fight like hell to stay independent. Hmm. And uh, it it didn't start out that way. Everybody was pretty much independent. uh, And doctors tend to be independent thinkers. But uh, the healthcare system became more collectivized. And uh, they uh, hated uh, competition, so they started outlawing competition, and uh, they started uh, sequestering all the uh, physicians who would refer to a general surgeon like me. And so I, I needed to write this book because I thought people, the public and everyone else, should know what this kind of system does to an independent uh, doctor. Beautiful. And uh, it, it's not good. And it, I had to have a root hog or die attitude mm. uh, in, in order to uh, get through this. And I did. I was on call basically all the time uh, for the first uh, 20 years or so, actually a little more. And uh, that's how I uh, was able to uh, stay alive in, in one sense, in that uh, they always knew that if they called me, I'd be around. And... Uh, so that that helped. That's but, uh, that's commendable. That, that, that's one, yeah. That's one of the reasons I I wrote the book to show what it took to uh, be a doctor that demanded independence, and how this became riskier over time in this healthcare system that became progressively more hostile to this independence. Yeah, I have I have several friends who are doctors uh, in different uh, you know, fields of expertise. One was the top thoracic surgeon, probably in, at least in Texas, and uh, you know gravitated to another another uh, area of expertise. But uh, he was always having difficulty with insurance coverage and other things that were <laughs> were, were giving him grief. And I'm sure you had the uh, the same experiences. Oh, sure. I mean, that, it was all a big cartel. You know, the insurance cartel. Uh, became it's it's not a free enterprise or free market system the, the insurance company and neither are the hospitals mm-hmm. and so the pricing system went uh, defunct and uh, that's why because they, they outlawed basically outlawed competition by uh, creating certificate of need laws so that if you wanted to compete with a hospital you had to show that it was necessary otherwise it was considered a duplication of services. Wow, and uh, I, th- you know, imagine how that would have went over in the technology sector when it was growing and doing well. Mm. It wouldn't have gone over at all. In fact, it would have been terrible. Unfortunately, in the technology sector, they were a free market, and that's what made uh, medical care 
uh, advanced like it has was actually the uh, technology sector, not the uh, politics of medicine. That 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 really uh, hurt medicine and made the prices go crazy. And a lot of small towns underserved because of that as well, because uh, doctors are having to uh, join associations and and other things that are uh, suppressing the care that's needed in those rural areas. Were you a rural doctor or a big city? Rural. Rural. Oh, that's I was always uh, I was always rural. I was uh, in a town of about thirty thousand, twenty five, thirty thousand, and uh, even when I expanded into two towns, which I needed to do to stay alive, hmm. I was still. Uh, that was also a town of about thirty thousand. That's that's how I stayed alive was uh, combining two segments of Iowa to get enough cases to do uh, to, to specialize in uh, obesity surgery. Oh, that's the same as my uh, same as my thoracic uh, surgeon. He migrated to that. He, uh, that oh, I'll be darned. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. It is. It is. I had I, I had to do the same thing. Wow, uh, <laughs> your your book is only 114 pages long. You could have done a lot of detail work and uh, complained a lot, or you know, highlighted um, things in your in your practice that uh, could have gone on forever, I guess, with a with a career like you've had. One of the things that you sure. do in your dedication is dedicate it to a spouse that was also a nurse. So she understood uh, uh, what was happening in your practice. I'm guessing from that standpoint, it was a great, uh, great thing to have her as a partner. Oh, I, I couldn't have done it without her. She really uh, did make the practice go, mm. as the bariatric practice. I, she started out in general surgery practice with me uh, and when we married. And then uh, she saw that I had to uh, do all sorts of things to uh, jump over the referral base that was being bought by the hospital in the whole region. Wow. And, uh, and so I lost that referral base because they also bought a uh, multi-specialty group and they wanted their uh, referrals, the primary care, to refer to the multi-specialty group that they owned. And so that left me out in the cold, and I had to figure out all kinds of ways to come up with uh, a way to stay independent. And so I started with the uh, vein surgery. I did a lot of vein surgery and spider vein uh, injections, things like that. That didn't work out because people in Iowa are not that vein. Hmm. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no pun intended. No, I, I but, understand. Uh, then I went into uh, laser hair removal just to supplement uh, my income. Wow. That didn't go over very well. That laser broke, cost me ten thousand dollars to get it fixed, and so I was. That just was not a way to do improve things. And then my son, who was a resident or actually a, a medical student at Northwestern, he said he saw uh, someone do a gastric bypass laparoscopically mm -hmm. and I, I didn't believe it um, I, I didn't think anybody could do an operation like that through a laparoscope uh, but then I investigated and it was certainly true and then I realized that I could jump over the referral base by just uh, going directly to patients who needed the surgery, and that's what I did, and it worked. I believe that's the same thing my friend has also done in his career uh, with, with what you've described. And he married a nurse, yeah. as, uh, come to think of it. Your book, <laughs> 114 pages, It uh, are there amusing uh, stories in here as well? Who's going to, to find this uh, entertaining or enlightening? Well, I think uh, think enlightening would be someone who uh, tends to be a libertarian type. Mm-hmm. 
and and not uh, not a socialistic uh, mentality. They wouldn't like it a bit, <laughs> but the the others will, and it's about fifty fifty in our country. The other people that would like it would be the nurses in the hospital, because I give a chapter to uh, the importance of these uh, unsung heroes in an operating room, the nurses, and. I think they would like it. I got along real well with them, and that's how you get them to do a good work is is you you're, you recognize them as human beings. Well, great. And uh, but I tell you, they uh, they don't get paid what they're worth. <laughs> I don't know many people who think they do. I mean, even even the uh, professional athletes don't think they're getting paid enough. I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> part of human nature. I think. <laughs> Well, that's true, but I, I'm looking at it from a doctor. Yes, looking at it uh, at a nurse, and I would say that boy, are they ever underpaid? Uh, when the agree. administrators on big hospitals make five times that of an average orthopedic surgeon. Wow, and uh, forty-four times that of a nurse, and that started uh, about ten years ago or more, when they started uh, determining their own salary. Because, like I say, that there, there was no pricing system in medicine; it ruined that. And so there's no good way to know what they're worth. So that this is what's happened. It's just all artificial. And a lot of your uh, health care dollars are going toward administration and satisfying massive regulations in our uh, health care system that have come up over the last, uh, well, since 1984 it really started. Incredible. And, uh, yeah, it was, it's amazing what's happened. And the only reason we stayed alive was because of technology. Well, it's a fascinating story for sure. You you have uh, highlighted, or in your title have called it, the making of a cowboy doctor. And uh, chapters uh, actually 12, 13, 14, and 15 deal with that, and even 16 and 17. Uh, really, uh, many of the short chapters that you've penned have talked about that. You talk about uh, the uh, tough hombre who is a doctor, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, who is a cowboy, and uh, would that be uh, referring to you, perhaps? I think the tough hombre was uh, my competitor. Hmm. I, th- I think uh, he he came uh, to the hospital uh, where I transferred to for bariatric surgery, and uh, I we the previous uh, surgeon uh, that I trained to be a partner left for transplant surgery in uh, Tampa, Florida, and so we needed another bariatric surgeon. I was getting older. I didn't want to be on twenty four seven anymore. So I, um, they hired this uh, fellow, and uh, he immediately didn't like me. He didn't think <laughs> I should be there <laughs> for some reason. Well, that and, was uh, rude. Yeah. He was a, a, a terrible, uh, actually a terrible uh, surgeon. Wow. He, uh, and and it, that's what, the other thing I wanted to bring out in my book is that uh, uh, first-rate surgeons don't necessarily, the technical aspect of it is not the essential aspect. Most people can have the dexterity to do surgery. Most people. Hmm. The, the thing that makes the difference is your courage. And uh, I, I, I saw that in my training over and over and over again, where some surgeons were pickers and they'd, uh, they'd frighten at uh, the slightest bleeding. Others would uh, ignore that bleeding some were slashers. They were overconfident. Ooh. And uh, the ones that were efficient, they just knew what to do, and they had the courage to do it. And that's what I noticed about many surgeons, especially this guy I'm talking about, Tough Ombre. Uh, many surgeons, their technical skills were fine, but it was their, 
they, they could not make a decision. Even dissecting the tissues with your fingers or with a scissors or all that requires judgment and uh, decision making all the time. And it's not the te- technical uh, hand technique. It's, it's the decision making. Hmm. And that's what makes a good surgeon. And I found that out when I uh, was a resident in uh, surgery. And it was just amazing what I, the difference in uh, surgeons that I saw in my training. Well, there's a British series on where the doctor actually gets nauseated at the sight of blood and nearly passes out. I don't know if you've seen that or not. I've, I've forgotten the name of it. But it's, <laughs> no, it's, I... it's, an, it's, a, it's a fun <laughs> series for that reason. I mean, it's, it's almost like a soap opera. It's in a small town in, in Great Britain and uh, talks about the residents <laughs> and, and the doctor in specific. Every time he sees blood, he has to go and uh, you know, he loses his lunch, basically. <laughs> so, you, you know, he, doctors are human. Uh, they certainly are. But you have uh, highlighted some wonderful stories in your book. There's 21 chapters and you've uh, condensed them down to 114 pages. Uh, what is your hope for the book? Uh, what do you want to achieve with it? Uh, who do you want to impress, I, I guess, if I could use that word, and, sure. uh, and reach? Well, I want to reach, uh, I want the general public to know what's going on in medicine and why it's so expensive, hmm. number one. Number two, I want them to know uh, uh, basically uh, what it takes to be a surgeon and just what I talked about, it's not necessarily technique as much as it is being entirely fact-oriented. Good facts, bad facts, you have to be honest enough to face them. And that's the other thing I found in my uh, 40-year career is, and my training is that ability to uh, look at facts, whether you like them or not, is, is essential to the patient's uh, well-being. And it... it uh, it doesn't always exist in, in every uh, doctor or surgeon, and I've seen some real disasters because of that. Uh, your book, again, is uh, an interesting series of tales in a very short read of 114 pages. Uh, it is really the history and the observations from an independent thinker and a doctor, uh, author Kyle Versteg. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? You can get them on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble website, and uh, the Ex Libris website. They'll find it also if they do a search under the title of the book, which is The Making of a oh, Cowboy yeah, I'm Doctor. Oh, sure they would. Yeah, Cowboy yes, Doctor, uh, Making of a Cowboy Doctor. Excellent. Yeah, they'll, they'll, it'll pop up. Excellent. Uh, is there anything else in the works from, a, uh, from an authorship standpoint uh, for um, us to look forward to in the future? Well, I, you know, I, uh, people have asked me that, and... Uh, my, my purpose uh, in writing this book was really sort of a, a, a closure of my uh, career. Yes. And that's uh, the other reason I wrote it is because I needed to have that closure. But otherwise, you know, I, if this book does well, then I uh, might be entertaining doing another book, maybe adding to some of the things that I saw in my practice, which are... Uh, Stranger than fiction. I mean, <laughs> reality, really, in medicine, can be stranger than fiction. I understand that. And, uh, yes. So it's possible that I'll uh, write some more, but I, I, I just, the reason I wrote this uh, was for closure. Thank you, Doctor, for sharing your life and your story and your talents uh, with the folks of Iowa and also with the reading public. So, again, the title of the book, for those of you doing a search online, The Making of a Cowboy Doctor, my guest author, Kyle Versteg. Thank you, sir, for for being a part of today's program, and best of luck. Hope 
hopefully we'll get to visit in the future with uh, something new that inspires you. Boy, that'd be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Doctor. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker.